KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Vaccine hesitancy aside, there are mandates for healthcare workers. In the healthcare facility, it's very important to be vaccinated both to protect ourselves and also our patients. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Should we be getting booster shots? There will be a time for that, but certainly right now the priority is vaccinating the unvaccinated because we are seeing good protection from the vaccines. And the latest on efforts to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. Plus, we'll tell you where you can see Charos and the musical Hair. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Healthcare workers across the state will be required to have at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine by the end of the month. This requirement and similar requirements by other employers has led to some pushback. About 100 people protested vaccine requirements outside Rady Children's Hospital yesterday. Rady Children's registered nurse Lisa Silvera was at the protest and said current safety protocols should be enough. We wear masks at work. We wear face shields. With all the patients that I've taken care of and the adults I've been around, I haven't caught it yet with those safety precautions. So I don't understand why they feel that we need to be forced if the current methods are working. The protest was one of several held outside of children's hospitals across the state. Dr. Davy Smith is Chief of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at UC San Diego. He joins us to discuss the hesitancy among healthcare providers and the public. Dr. Smith, welcome. Thank you. You know, how would you respond to the nurse we heard from in the introduction? Yeah, I do understand how everything is moving quickly and we have a good vaccine and it works and people are still might have some hesitancy around the vaccine because maybe it's so new. But it's not unusual in healthcare situations to have an added level of protection. We mandated hepatitis B vaccines for a long time and we've mandated measles vaccines for a long time. And both of those we have other procedures in place to protect our healthcare workers. But that added level protection from vaccines is really, really important and are really our best defense. I mean, how does the Delta variant change the game on all that? Well, the Delta variant is definitely more infectious than the previous versions of this virus. Um, And it looks to be more contagious and perhaps more deadly for those people who are unvaccinated. But those people who are vaccinated still have an enormous amount of protection from uh, the Delta variant. Hmm. And just to be clear, healthcare workers who are hesitant to get vaccinated are in the minority. I mean, vaccination rates at local healthcare facilities range from 75 to 85 percent. I mean, how is UCSD doing in terms of vaccination of employees? Very well. Um, we, we're mandating 
our vaccination of our healthcare employees. Um, and as far as I know, we're doing very well in our vaccination rates. So where do we need to get in terms of vaccination levels at healthcare facilities and in the general public? As high as possible is what we really need, um, both in healthcare facilities, but also just within our community. In the healthcare facility, it's very important to be vaccinated both to protect ourselves, as me as a healthcare worker, and also uh, our patients. So we don't want to be spreading it to our patients, um, and we so we want to protect them the best we can, especially those patients who are immunosuppressed, that meaning that they're not able to respond to the vaccine so well. So we, I was uh, on service, meaning in the hospital, seeing patients over the weekend, and we had lots of patients who had taken their vaccine, but it just didn't work as well for them. And they were pretty sick. And those are the ones that we really need to protect both in the community and definitely within our healthcare system. How effective do you think employer mandates like the mandate for healthcare workers are in increasing vaccination rates? I think that uh, employer mandates will definitely increase vaccination uptake. Um, I also think that increasing vaccination uptake in healthcare systems will improve the health of the employees to better take care of the patients and also to help protect the patients when they get into the hospital. Does it have the possibility, though, of having the opposite effect? Could people become more hesitant if they feel they're being forced into it? I think that is always a risk, but I have not seen that bear out. Hmm. Do you think the reason some healthcare workers are hesitant to get the COVID-19 vaccine differ uh, from the reasons of the general public? Uh, no, it's not been my experience. I think that people who are healthcare workers are also people and live in our communities and might have the same ideas about vaccines, including hesitancy around those vaccines. What are the main reasons people are hesitant to get vaccinated? I've heard so many. It's like every person might have their own reason why not to get the vaccine. Uh, some patients have told me that they're worried that they're going to be magnetized. And other patients are worried that there just hasn't enough data out there to say that they're safe for long term. And others are thinking that COVID doesn't even really exist. And this is just a government overreach. So I think the opinions and thoughts out there are quite varied, and it's important for me as a healthcare worker and especially as an infectious disease specialist to go out there and answer questions as much as possible, which is one of the reasons I'm talking to you today, um, to get that information out there so that we could all get the vaccination and uh, have a healthier community. You know, how does this evolving pandemic create challenges for those who are hesitant? I mean, the information is constantly evolving with it. And many people say vaccinated people are getting infected and are spreading the virus. I mean, what do you say to that? Um, in a viral pandemic, we expect evolution to happen. We've now seen the virus evolve multiple times with multiple different variants to become more infectious. We've seen our learning about the virus also change, which means that we should change our guidance over time. We didn't know everything when we started. And if we thought we did, we would have surely made mistakes. So it is important for the public health agencies and advice to change. And that's something I know that frustrates lots of people, but that just shows that it's working. As we learn more, we should change more. And we're going to keep seeing it, honestly. Now, to the question of vaccinated people getting infected, yes, it, it can happen. It happens a lot, lot less. And people who do get infected have a lot less risk of getting 
hospitalized or dying. So it's still that the vaccination is very important, even though we have this Delta variant running around our community. Mm. And I want to circle back to to more of the hesitancy. I mean, where does this hesitancy come from, you think? We, we've had vaccine hesitancy for years, uh, decades, as long as uh, I've been around. Uh, and before, people have had some skepticism around vaccines. I think it's a natural human response. Uh, the first defense mechanism we have is called denial, and it's part of this uh, issue around vaccine hesitancy. And it's just now playing out in a grander scale now that we have both a, a huge pandemic that is costing hundreds of thousands of people's lives. And at the same time, we have a vaccine that's very new, but also very effective. So that clash of things is just going to cause some hesitancy, I'm afraid. I've been speaking with Dr. Davy Smith, who is Chief of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at UC San Diego. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The newness of COVID-19 has led to confusing advice all through the epidemic. Now the confusion surrounds booster shots. Is it a good idea for a fully vaccinated person to get an extra dose of vaccine to boost immunity to the Delta variant? Some physicians and researchers say yes. The CDC and San Diego health officials say no, while others say it couldn't hurt. While the emphasis remains on getting shots into the millions of still unvaccinated Americans, some fully vaccinated people are looking for ways to get additional protection. Even though health experts say current vaccinations already provide robust immunity to COVID variants. Joining me is Dr. Shira Abelis. She is an infectious disease specialist at UC San Diego Health. Dr. Abelis, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Where do you stand on this question about booster shots? Are they a good idea? I think we will be seeing booster shots for immune compromised individuals, and that's who needs them. Uh, I don't think it'll be broadly for the entire population, but certainly for the very elderly who wouldn't have been expected to have a robust response to initial vaccination. We expect we'll be eligible and we'll be getting vaccine. And then certainly for people with immune compromised conditions, such as those who've gotten an organ transplant or bone marrow transplant, um, they would really benefit from the extra protection from a vaccine. Um, Those people getting chemotherapy, really acutely ill or chronically ill individuals, but not someone in their 40s who who, um, will really do well from the initial vaccines. And what do we know about the level of protection that fully vaccinated people already have from the virus and the variant? We are seeing very strong protection from the vaccines, but we are seeing people hospitalized with a history of vaccination, but they are from those categories that I described, um, people who've gotten you know, a liver transplant, kidney transplant in the recent months, um, people who are getting chemotherapy who happen to get COVID. They are by and large, the people who are really sick in the hospital. We do see some uh, vaccinated people getting COVID, so they are feeling unwell and certainly you know, could be having fevers, could be having body aches, um, but they're generally doing well and not requiring hospitalization. This is in line with you know, protection from the vaccine. It's just not 100% protection. There seems to be some special concern about the immunity of people who got the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Is there reason for concern? 
I don't think so. I think a lot of the anxiety is, you know, it's fewer people and it's been around for a shorter amount of time. So there's just not as much information. Um, Pfizer was the first one and it was used very actively. So it was millions of people getting vaccinated earlier. So we just have more information. Same with Moderna. Johnson & Johnson was released largely after we had a big swath of the population vaccinated. And so um, we're still seeing protection, but I understand you know, people are anxious because there's not as much talk about it, um, but we're still seeing protection just in our internal data at UC San Diego Health. We just don't have the numbers of people who ended up getting that vaccine because our community of healthcare workers was largely vaccinated um, in the early months of vaccine availability. Now, many healthcare providers in San Diego say they are not offering additional doses to fully vaccinated people. But meanwhile, San Francisco is telling people who got the J&J vaccine that they can get an additional dose of Pfizer or Moderna. So this is very confusing to people, right? Yes, I think so. Um, we are not offering or advocating for that at this time. Um, we're definitely waiting for more data and We'll definitely be focusing on those sensitive, uh, vulnerable populations like we talked about for considerations of boosting, you know, when the community um, has the data and, and is ready to move forward with that. Yeah, many people in San Diego who, who got that one-shot J&J were people who may not come back for a second dose. Uh, a lot of the homeless population, migrant farm workers, could they now be at risk? Again, we are seeing protection with this. So I think the one dose has shown and been proven to show good efficacy. There's data out of South Africa um, that we think is showing good efficacy. So it's really that people who, who wouldn't have gotten the major benefits from the vaccination initially, the people who, you know, we give vaccines for people over the age of 65 for other vaccines like Pneumavax, um, uh, shingles, all these kind of things, because with age or in immune compromising conditions, we know the immune system isn't functioning at its maximal capacity. Um, and in, in those settings, we routinely give booster shots. So we knew with Johnson and Johnson from the clinical trials that it wasn't entire um, protection from any you know, illness at all from COVID, but it was this really wonderful protection from morbidity, mortality, ending up in the hospital. Um, and so what we're seeing is that that protection still remains. Vaccine producers say it's likely that we'll all need COVID booster shots in time. Do you see that becoming a standard as annual flu shots? Certainly not right now. I think this is, you know, certainly a greater challenge and it'll take a while to get up to that. I think it's really important to think about the global community. There are countries where the healthcare workers, the elderly are not vaccinated. And we know that COVID is so contagious that problems anywhere eventually come around um, to be issues everywhere. So will it be annual vaccination? I don't know. I do think we will eventually need a booster shot or if there's enough mutations um, from the virus being able to replicate so much in unvaccinated populations around the world or in our own communities here, there will be a time for that. But certainly right now, the priority is vaccinating the unvaccinated um, because we are seeing good protection from the vaccines and boosting those who 
we know um, have had an incomplete response to the vaccine and generally are the people who we go ahead and revaccinate with all of our standard vaccines. And the Food and Drug Administration is expected to give full authorization to the COVID vaccines any day now. How do you think that's going to affect the number of unvaccinated people who come forward to get their shots? It'll definitely increase the number. How dramatically? I'm not sure, of course, but it will certainly support vaccine mandates um, and it will support people who have just been holding out um, for that reason. And there's no reason to think that it will not be approved. I think we've been trying to get that message out all along. These vaccines are safe, effective. We've been trying to get people vaccinated, but there's just some hesitancy. I think it will definitely help overcome that. And I've been speaking with Dr. Shira Abelis, infectious disease specialist at UC San Diego Health. Dr. Abelis, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The effort to recall Governor Gavin Newsom is shaping up to be more of a battle than previously thought. Recent polls have shown large numbers of likely voters favoring recall. And last weekend, the state Republican Party decided not to endorse a recall candidate, fearing an endorsement could split Republican voters and lead to fewer votes to recall Newsom. Meanwhile, Newsom's team is trying to motivate Democratic voters. Pollsters say many Democrats seem apathetic about the recall vote next month. UC San Diego political science professor Thad Kauser has been following this recall process closely, and he joins us now. Thad, welcome. Thanks for having me. Welcome to election month. Yes, indeed. Now, do you agree that giving an endorsement to one candidate was not in GOP interests right now? The unique rules of California's recall process give the Republican Party the ability to to punt on this issue, right? They don't have to get a single candidate above 50% to win this election. That's usually what an endorsement does. It right, helps clear the field and consolidate all the support on one candidate. The way the recall works is that if a majority of Californians vote yes on the first ballot, then whoever wins the most votes on the second ballot, even if that person only has 15, 20% of the vote, that person can win. And all the leading contenders right now are Republicans. And so that means that really whoever can coalesce enough support, Republicans can recapture uh, the governor's seat in this very blue state if they can win on the recall ballot. Now, we are, as you mentioned, just a little over a month away from the recall election. A survey USA poll came out last week. 51% of those polled said they would vote to remove Gavin Newsom from office. Why do you think Newsom is looking at numbers like that? 
that poll survey us usa polls sometimes skew republicans so we're not too sure about that poll what we've seen is in poll after poll the recall support ends at about in the high 30s for for all registered voters in california but when you look at only likely voters, right? The people who are going to be really motivated to turn out over the next month where we're not going to have this one big event, this one big election day on September 14th. It's going to be mail-in ballots sent to everyone in California starting next week. And so it's going to be this election that nobody notices, really, unless they're checking their mail, unless they're tuned in. When you look at polls that screen for likely voters, uh, you see you see the recall neck and neck uh, with with the no on the recall because the most motivated voters right now are, are the Republicans and and the independents in California think the state's headed in the wrong direction. Well, you know, this is a bad time for the governor to face a recall with Delta variant numbers going up. We've got wildfires raging in Northern California. But what are the strengths Newsom might be able to rely on to pull him through? Well, one big strength is that Gavin Newsom has scared all the leading Democrats uh, out of the recall race. Uh, he has sort of used his support and and made sure that unlike in 2003, where we saw Gray Davis's lieutenant governor, uh, Cruz Bustamani, run to replace him, you don't see any major Democrat in the in the, running in the recall race. And so that really leaves California with a choice between a you know a Republicans who have all supported Donald Trump, right, uh, versus Gavin Newsom. And so he may benefit if people say, I don't love Gavin Newsom, but I really hate the other alternative. The other thing is California's recovery from uh, from the pandemic, and especially the federal budget that has given great amounts of money to, to the state, has left Gavin Newsom with, he spent the spring and the summer spending billions and billions of dollars investing that in different areas of, of California, putting it into schools, putting it into wildfire protection, putting it into more housing, putting it into investments in homelessness. So he's had a lot of positive news and positive stories to tell because of the large budget surplus coming into uh, to this election. Now, despite the GOP reluctance to endorse a candidate, though, is there a Republican replacement that voters seem to be rallying around? Well, the leading candidate is the one who dodged the debate last week, uh, and that's talk show host Larry Elder, who ever since his entry in the race, right, he came with this platform that has vaulted him into the lead above John Cox, uh, who is who has invested a huge amount of his own money in his own campaigns, and Kevin Faulkner, who is the the establishment choice who many people thought as as the more moderate Republican, as the one with the office holding experience, would be uh, would be the most viable candidate. I think all three of those have some shot at it, but Larry Elder seems to be the one who's coalescing the most support. He's probably never going to get to 50% in a state like California, but he doesn't have to in this recall. He just needs to get his core fervent supporters. And overall, how would you say former Mayor Kevin Faulkner is doing in this recall election? You know, this is the campaign that 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 hasn't caught fire, even though most political observers have thought he's presented the most substantive policy alternatives. He presents the, the political profile, right? Someone who's open to immigration, someone who speaks Spanish, someone who's taken action on climate change, right? He looks like that moderate, you know, in some ways, almost Arnold Schwarzenegger-like Republican in many of his positions, but he doesn't have that Arnold Schwarzenegger charisma appeal or, or money or, or, or that media platform. And so very few people have noticed, right, that he's that strong candidate. Also, his vote for Donald Trump has, has really cost him among moderates.
Now, Governor Newsom apparently has a major war chest to spend on this recall election. How is he spending it? We're going to see more and more ads, but really this will be about a ground game. I think what we've learned from polls is that overcoming the enthusiasm gap, right, that uh, the excitement that's on the Republican side and the lack of excitement on the Democratic side and among Democratic-leaning moderates, that's Gavin Newsom's biggest enemy in this. And so working with groups, working with labor groups to get people knocking on doors saying, hey, you got that ballot. Here's how to vote it. You can you can take it down to a vote center if you want, or you can send it in the mail, getting the word out about this election, getting people motivated and engaged with this election. If he can bring a, the, the, the full California electorate to the polls, and if this is a high turnout election, like the 2003 recall, then, then signs point to Gavin Newsom being able to survive it. Okay, so when voters start getting their mail ballots for the recall, what will they actually see? Are there two ballots? And do you have to fill them both out? Yeah, so there's what's called a dual ballot. So it'll be a single ballot with two choices, right? It's actually going to be a lot shorter than most of our ballots in California elections. The first thing we'll say, do you support the recall? Yes or no, right? And that simple majority wins on that one. But then regardless of how you vote on that first ballot, you also get to to vote on the second choice on that ballot, which is between 46 candidates to see who would replace Gavin Newsom immediately if he is recalled. There are 22 Republicans, including some some of these notable officeholders we've talked about, Uh, only nine Democrats, none of whom has any statewide profile, Uh, three minor party candidates, and then 10 who say they, they have no party preference. Voters are free to choose from any of those, and whoever gets the most votes in that second part of the ballot wins. Now, Governor Newsom apparently is starting to tell supporters they shouldn't even fill out the second ballot, just vote no. Is that right? It's the right political stratagem for Gavin Newsom, right? He wants to make this a choice between Gavin Newsom and a Donald Trump Republican, right? Knowing that Democrats, really, that's that's functionally what the choice is going to be. There is no there there is no one Democrat, it looks like, who, who's going to consolidate the vote. The leading vote getter on that second ballot will be one of these Republicans. So he wants to focus everyone on this, on voting no on the recall and and make it clear that he's the only alternative to turning California red. And we start getting those ballots next week, you say? We'll start getting those ballots next week. Uh, and then they can be mailed at any point up to uh, election day, I believe. But get yours in early. We saw how the last election went. Uh, and this is uh, now's the time to vote. Okay, then. I've been speaking with UC San Diego political science professor Thad Kauser. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Across the country, dozens of chararias offer spectators a look at the living history of Mexico's proud ranching culture. These exhibitions allow participants to hone their skills while giving members of the Mexican-American community a gathering place that celebrates a centuries-old tradition. According to Ramon Jara, captain of Charo's Rancho La Laguna, taking part in the events means representing his proud Mexican heritage. When you dress up as a charro, you're dressing up like Mexico, and that's important to me. It means the values of a family, it means the value of being a good athlete, it means the value of being Mexican, it means the value of especially being in a country that that this is not the norm. That's why it's important to me, for the traditions, for the kids, for the family, that this is a sport, and it's a sport that we all love, it's a sport that brings a lot of families together, and it's a sport that makes us really go back to our culture, our roots of Mexico. 
San Diego Union Tribune reporter Andrea Lopez Villafania joins us now with more. Andrea, welcome. Thank you for having me. Great to join you. So what can spectators expect to see at these events? Oh my gosh, these these competitions are just an explosion and a demonstration of tradition. I mean, I can tell you that when I was at a recent competition, I felt like I was transported to Mexico. You know, there, there's music, ranchera music, there's vendors selling tacos. But aside from that, just watching the overall traditions and practices of the sport where you have these chattels dressed up in very traditional outfits, right? They're, they're embroidered. Some of them have these iconic uh, religious, you know, little tokens uh, on some of their uniforms, the horses, the band, you know, the women are dressed in these beautiful traditional outfits. And it's it's just an explosion and a demonstration of uh, Mexico's culture and tradition. Uh, you see a lot of um, exciting roping events, some of them a little scary to watch. Uh, you're kind of concerned for the rider because they're going so fast. But overall, you know, it's just such a beautiful display of tradition. You know, as we heard in the clip earlier, and as you just mentioned, the actual participants of these events view what they're doing as a sport. Can you tell us more about that? So these men, uh, the team I spoke with, with Rancho La Laguna, they're super interesting because often with Charreria, it's a sport that people practice from a young age. So most people start at the age of six, maybe five. Um, but um, some of these guys, uh, you know, most of them started when they were six, but some of them started at a much later age. And um, aside from having, you know, nine to five jobs, um, this is something that they dedicate you know, hours to, sometimes practice three times a week. Uh, this is an actual sport for them. I mean, they train for this, they practice, they have to perfect all of their um, different exhibits, different events that they have to do, right? Because they have these roping events that can be very complicated. And if not done right, they can actually be very dangerous. So um, it's definitely not something that anyone can just hop on and start doing. <laughs> it takes years of practice and, and dedication to, to get it done right. And as you kind of touched on this, you you write in recent years that venues where some of these are held locally have been in danger of closing down. Is that still a big concern? The ranch I, I mentioned in my story, someone in Escondido, they've been around for 50 years. And for a while, they were, you know, struggling to survive and fighting the city because it was city property and where they were practicing. And the city wanted to build something else. At the moment, you know, they, they were able to lobby the city and keep their ranch but they still struggle. I mean, it's, it's a huge property and it takes a lot of upkeep and they're a nonprofit. So um, they rely a lot on donations to, to keep the space up. So they continue to struggle every day. And, you know, the person I spoke with who uh, leads the team and takes care of the ranch mentioned that if, if he only had the resources, you know, he imagines it a space where hundreds of families could come and maybe families who are from the Latino community who can kind of relate to, to the sport and see themselves reflected in that and see themselves connected in the tradition, but also families who might not be familiar with the sport and, you know, are looking to, to experience something new. So it sounds like, you know, for many, the spectacle and tradition of these events really offers a sort of home away from home. I mean, can you tell me about that? I can tell you from my own experience as well, because I'm from Guadalajara, which is actually like where the sport is just gigantic. And I never experienced that when I was in Mexico growing up as a little girl. So seeing that there's just something, it's the music, seeing their outfits, the way that they're dressed, the way that these men, you know, talk about the sport and how that some of them, their grandfathers lived on ranches. And this was something that they did not so much as a sport, but just kind of daily task work at the ranch. 
it just totally brings you back back to that life and um, seeing people, you know, speak speak Spanish. Everyone speaking Spanish at the event. The music, the food, the camaraderie, the family. I think Ramon mentioned that is a big is a big part of it. You see a lot of families. It's a total family event. It, yeah, there's a lot of camaraderie and there's a lot of beauty to it. Yeah, I mean, that is a, a huge part of it. And, you know, these events offer a, a little bit of everything from horsemanship to dancing and vendors. How Talk about how important these gatherings are to the Mexican-American community. Yeah, so the, these, um, you know, the competitions, aside from being the competition, right, at the beginning, you kind of have um, all the teams come together and they all have to perform nine different events. And that's nine different tasks where maybe one's including... Um, roping a horse, another one's roping a bull, another one's jumping from another horse. And these are very exciting to watch, by the way. Um, And it starts off like that. But then you have all these vendors who are just kind of selling a lot of, um, you know, uh, um, traditional Mexican items and and clothing. And and you have these food vendors. But as the night goes on and the competition kind of slows down, um, hundreds of people just fill fill the arenas. And um, it becomes a big party, a big celebration with uh, banda music and everyone's dressed up and just there to celebrate uh, their Mexican heritage. So um, I spoke with an expert who, a professor who works in Texas, and um, she mentioned that the communities that tend to have these kinds of venues, um, they tend to have this sense of belonging when, when they go to these events because they're seeing things that maybe they saw back when they lived in Mexico or maybe for the first time something that they've experienced and maybe only heard from their parents. So it's an opportunity for individuals to connect with with their culture and their traditions and music that they hear from their parents or at home. You know, many people refer to these as Mexican rodeos. Can you tell me why that's a bit of an oversimplification? Oh, yeah. So actually, uh, speaking with a lot of the charros that day, you know, that came up often. Um, and and it's 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 somewhat a, a simple way of explaining it, right, to someone who may not know exactly what charros and charreria is. But, but this is a tradition that has been around since 16th century in Mexico. It actually started off um, with the Spaniards did not let um, Indians ride horses. So um, the, the Indians that worked on, on some of their land had to learn these like complicated roping techniques so they could, you know, pull the horses together and animals together without necessarily being on a horse, which, which was incredibly difficult. And eventually these roping techniques and everything that they learned turned into the sport. Um, so it's been around forever and it actually uh, has been around longer than American rodeo. And a lot of the chattels, you know, say that that American rodeo is kind of a copied <laughs> copy of chateria. So that that's kind of why people feel it's an oversimplification. You write that it's important for many charros and charas to pass off these traditions to the next generation. Is there a worry that this will disappear? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said, it's not it's not something that, you know, anyone can pick up. It's often something that people learn uh, to do when when they're five or six years old. And it's definitely not a, a cheap sport, right? You have to have a horse, you have to have a place to board your horse, you have to have a space to practice to have events. 
So there's definitely a concern for so many of the individuals that I interviewed, you know, their family members um, did this. They, they lived on ranches and they, they were chattels or um, they competed professionally in Mexico as chattels. And it was a, a big sense of pride, right? Just like in any family, if your you know, dad played basketball or your dad played baseball, that, that's going to be a big conversation at, at the dinner table and maybe something that your kids will want to follow through. So it's kind of the same thing with Chaveria. They, they have family members and parents who did this and they want to you know, do it themselves and keep the tradition alive and pass it on to their children. And, and it becomes hard because <laughs> maybe hanging out at the ranch doesn't sound as fun for, for a young kid now, but um, I think some of them are going to be successful. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Andrea Lopez Villafania. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. The Old Globe Theater returns to in-person performances with a newly mounted production of the 1967 rock musical Hair. The play will be performed at the Lowell Davies Festival Theater and opens tonight with preview performances. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando spoke with director James Vasquez at the outdoor venue during a band rehearsal. So James, talk a little bit about the choice of hair because you didn't pick it for this year, you actually had picked it earlier. We did, we had hair on the uh, schedule for 2020. And at the time we chose hair because we think it is, it's a story that's always relevant. What's wonderful about it is that every generation is gonna have a, a fight and every generation is gonna want to make the world a better place. And that's ultimately what hair is about. It's a group of young uh, people who come together fighting for change and fighting for better. So even though it was on tap for 2020, I find it still relevant and even more relevant now coming out of this year and a half of a shutdown where we built up energy and, and passions that were we weren't allowed to express. And so now to be back and to be able to stand on that stage and share our voices and share our authentic selves, which are big themes of, of our production of hair, I think is fantastic and, and important for the world today. Well, also as someone who grew up in the 60s and saw hair when it came out, what seems to connect with this current time is also this sense there's a lot of political upheaval where there's this mixture of hope that yes. we're about to have change and also this sense of we need to fight for this. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting that you, you mentioned the word hope because there's tradition in hair 
that every ensemble, every collective, give themselves a name. And we early on decided to call ourselves the Agape Hope Healers, just based on conversations that we started having in the room. And a lot of the cast's passions and reasons for taking to the streets really centered in hope and hope for change and hope for the future. We're keeping it said in 1968, but the ideas of, again, wanting better and knowing that there is better and knowing that if we come together as a collective, we can achieve better. It's certainly what is hope and love are the two words that have been guiding our process. And what was it about the play that you felt was most appealing and most challenging? Yeah, you know, Hair the Musical is, uh, it's epic. It's got almost 40 musical numbers in the show, every one of them being their own protest moment. That is really exciting. That really drew me to the piece. Everybody steps forward at some point with something that is vitally important to them. So that's really exciting to get to hear all those different voices and opinions. It's also really scary. So finding the through line and the heart in the story to our production of Hair was both exciting and challenging, finding the clarity in the story for us. And why did you feel it was important to keep it in the 68 setting and not try to modernize it in any way? Well, you know, I think it's important to keep it in 1968 because A, I think it's important to show humanity that we have continual opportunity to improve and we don't always take that opportunity. So it's a little bit of a smack in the face and reminder that we have work that we still need to be doing. There's so much value and importance to what was originally created and the voices that originally needed to tell this story. We've had a really exciting time taking 2021 and what is important to us and finding a way to put that into 1968. So you'll, you'll you're definitely going to have messages of Black Lives Matter, of um, uh, there's a big push of BIPOC stories in our production and gender issues and living your life authentically, which I think are wildly important issues in 2021 that fit into the story of hair. Now, when hair came out, it created a lot of controversy for multiple reasons. But when I saw it, in, when I was only in elementary school, my parents let me go see it, but I remember the two things that had caused a lot of uproar were they were naked people on stage and there was also a scene where they urinated on the flag. These are both very kind of of the 60s and 70s kind of ways of protest yes. and provoking audiences. Are those things remaining in the play? Do you think they still have the same kind of provocative quality? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There are, there are a couple challenging moments in the story, some that even sort of make the fur on the back of our, you know, stand up a little bit. We've had some conversations about moments in the show that make us uncomfortable that we, after discussion, find important to still tell and present as part of the story. I will say the um, urination on the flag is not no longer in the script. Um, and I don't think that is something that we would have pushed forward. We found, we found uh, other ways um, to make comments on what it is to be an American today. The nudity is included in our production. We, we found, again, after lots and lots of discussion, that 
the nudity is maybe one of the most important moments of the show. Claude's journey in the show is so much about the decision of, do I live this free authentic life or do I really give over to the system? And he makes his choice and the collective, in contrast, make a choice to express their freedom and liberation. And so the moment of nudity is just that. It is about freedom of expression and authenticity. But what's really surprising about it, I think Hair sort of is known as the naked musical. It's maybe 20 seconds long. While it's an important moment, it's also a really sort of non-eventful moment and beautiful moment. And we're sitting out here in front of the festival stage. We can hear the band rehearsing right now. Talk a little bit about the music and why you think it has this longevity to remain popular. I mean, the music comes from the gut. You know, you start hearing this music. I mean, I'm starting to bounce to it as I sit here talking to you. We find ourselves in the middle of rehearsal getting up and dancing with the cast. Something about it that just puts the number I got life. It truly sums up the energy of the show. You, you, this infuses you with an energy that hopefully makes you want to get up, dance, and go out and change the world. So, discuss a little bit the production design and the costume design and how that enhances this production. I'm working with um, phenomenal collaborators on this production. My scenic designer Tim McAbee. Initially, a year ago, we were scheduled to do the show indoors. So this year, we've had the opportunity to move out to the Lowell Davies Festival stage. You put those trees in the background and it just changes the world for you. So that guided us. I mean, we really set our world in a park, a corner of a park that our collective takes over. We've graffitied messages of hope and love all over the stage. We have found pieces that the collective brings in throughout the story really just to sort of establish this world that is theirs, separate from the outside world. So it's exciting. I think we're creating a really realistic yet bright, fun theatrical world on stage. All right, well, thank you very much for talking about hair. Yeah, thank you. That was Beth Accomando speaking with director James Vasquez. The Old Globe's production of Hair runs today through September 26th at the Lowell Davies Festival Theatre.